Section twenty three of Pentrophion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corinne LePage. Pentrophion by Alexis Sawyer. Fish, Part Two. Whiting. The flesh of this gadou is so light that, according to an old French proverb, the Merlon mange ne pèse non plus dans l'estomac que pendu à la ceinture. Whitings weigh no more when eaten than when hung to the girdle. Nevertheless, the Greeks did not think much of it, and they said that the whiting was only good for those who could not obtain more delicate fish. The Romans, less severe or not quite so particular, cooked their whitings with a sauce composed as follows: put with the fish in a stewpan some garum chopped leeks, cumin, savory, and a sufficient quantity of cooked wine, and some wine, slightly diluted, cook it on a slow fire. Codfish The codfish supplied the ancients with the most exquisite dish next to the sturgeon. The only fault found with it was that it cost less than others. The Greek cooks sprinkled it with grated cheese, moistened with vinegar, then they threw over it a pinch of salt and a few drops of oil. Persons with delicate stomachs did not scruple to partake of this aliment, which Galen warranted as being excellent. The average size of this fish is about three feet in length, but some are found of ten feet. The common weight is fifteen pounds, and some have been seen weighing sixty pounds. Luenhoek has said that nine million three hundred forty-four thousand eggs had been found in one fish, it is probable that he made a mistake, as a codfish of our days weighing fifty pounds produced only three million six hundred eighty-six thousand eggs, a number sufficiently prodigious, and which shows pretty well its great fecundity. It is supposed that the discovery of the great and small banks of codfish is due to the Basque fishermen, who arrived there in pursuit of whales one hundred years before Columbus's voyage. Others give that honor to James Cartier, a native of Falkland Islands. As early as the 14th century, the English and the inhabitants of Amsterdam busied themselves with cod-fishing, and later the Irish, Norwegians, French, and Spaniards competed with them more or less successfully. In 1533, Francis I, having sent J. Verrazzano, and afterwards Jacques Cartier, to explore the neighborhood of Newfoundland, the French fishermen followed them and brought back also this fish from those distant countries in the beginning of the 16th century. Man annually seizes upon a prodigious quantity of cods, and were it not for the immense extent of the means of reproduction allowed to it by nature, the species for a long time past would have been annihilated. It is even hardly conceived how it has been possible to preserve it, for it is well known that as early as 1368 the inhabitants of Amsterdam had brought up fishermen on the coast of Sweden, and, in the first quarter of 1792, according to a report presented to the minister, Roland, at the National Convention, that, from the ports of France, only 210 vessels, forming together 191,158 tons, went out for the cod fisheries, and that every year more than 10,000 vessels of all nations employed at this trade throw in the commercial world more than 40 million of salted and dried cod. 
if we add to this enumeration the havoc made among the lesions of these fishes by the great squales sharks and others besides the destruction of a multitude of young ones by the other inhabitants of the seas and sea birds together with the myriads of eggs destroyed by accident it really is extraordinary to see this fish in so great a quantity now but who can wonder since each female can every year give birth to more than nine million of young ones dr cloquet perch the greeks were acquainted with the perch diocles used to give the flesh to the sick xenocrates extolled those from the rhine and osinius the poet has sung the praises of those fed in moselle with the romans this fish obtained a renown almost equal to that bestowed on the trout and all eyes bespoke its welcome at supper when it appeared on the table covered with a seasoning in which pepper alisander cumin and onions were artistically combined with stoned damascus plums thanks to the clever use of wine vinegar sweet wine oil and cooked wine this ingenious amalgamation acquired over a slow fire the requisite consistence and cohesion skate the ancients liked or disliked skate according to the places where they eat it so now this fish is rejected in sardinia and thought excellent in london and paris the greek gastronomists of fashion sometimes partook of the back of the skate the remainder seemed unworthy of their attention and a certain poet maintains that a piece of stuff boiled offers to the palate a flavour quite as agreeable italian gluttony always gave a cold reception to this dish which they owed to the greek cooks which their magiric writers have not sufficiently studied aristotle knew of two species of skate pliny speaks of them lacepede enumerates thirty-nine species that celebrated naturalist buffon's pupil and competitor assures us that several eastern nations consider the smoke arising from the eggs of skates thrown on burning coals and inhaled by the mouth and nostrils as an excellent remedy against intermittent fever it would cost but little to make the experiment salmon it is reported that the salmon was thus named on account of its frequent leaping it has been sung by asonius its absence left a chasm in the delights of greece and it was late before it became known in rome pliny is the first of latin authors who name it ichthyophagy will cherish the memory of this laborious author he speaks with praise of the salmon taken in the garonne and dordogne he extols those of rhine but he seems to give a decided preference to those magnificent fishes covered with a silvery mail which disport in the limpid waters of that picturesque and beautiful aquitaine two centuries ago there was such a great quantity of salmon taken in the rivers of scotland that instead of being considered a delicate dish it served commonly as food for servants who it is said stipulated sometimes that they should not be obliged to eat that common tasteless aliment more than five times per week sepia or cuttlefish pliny has extolled the consistency of conjugal affection in the cuttlefish and the courage with which the male defends his companion in the moment of danger the poet perseus describes its flight protected by the thick black liquid with which it blinds its enemies apicius struck more by its succulent qualities opens this fish empties it and stuffs it with cooked brains to which he adds raw eggs and pepper he then boils it in a seasoning of pepper alisander 
parsley seed, and cooked wine, mixed with honey, wine, and garum. Thus prepared, the cuttlefish passed at Rome as an estimable dish, and which might be offered at an unpretending repast. Swordfish The Greeks were fond of the swordfish, and often partook of it with a sauce of which oil was the basis, and with which were mixed yolks of eggs, leeks, garlic, and cheese. The Romans thought very little of this fish, and prayed Neptune to send it far from their nets. Shad the shad was caught during the summer and sold to the people who boiled it and dished it up with strong herbs and oil this plebeian fish was excluded from all respectable banquets modern taste has allowed this estimable fish to reappear on the table where it is always seen with pleasure this fish caught in most of the great rivers of europe asia and northern africa bosque rombo or rhombus the rombo claimed the attention of the discriminating ichthyophagists of rome by the delicacy of its flesh and few fish would have been preferred to it had it not been feared that it rendered digestion difficult some intrepid stomachs however greeted this dish without much repugnance when presented to them fried and sprinkled with pepper in the midst of a seasoning in which pepper cumin coriander benzoin wild marjoram and rue heightened by a little vinegar were mixed with dates honey cooked wine and oil this boiling sauce was poured over the rombo but not before it had been enriched with garum which we had almost forgotten that inevitable brine which the ancient magiric genius placed everywhere and whose prodigious renown ought to have preserved it from oblivion mugil this fish singular instrument of a punishment invented by rome entered into the bill of fare of a fashionable supper but one without that magnificence which a feast of parade exacts it was prepared with pepper alisander cumin onion mint rue sage and dates mixed with honey vinegar mustard and oil the greeks also esteemed mugils and gave preference to those sold by the fishermen of Sciathus. mackerel commentators do not agree on the origin of this word Scaliger, who perceived Greek in everything, says it is derived from makyrios, happy. But then, in what does the facility of this fish consist? The old writer Bolon, more wise in his conjecture, thinks this word comes from Latin macularelli, little spots, because it is marked on the back with black stripes. Let the etymology be what it may, the Epicurean cares very little about it, Mackerel was much liked in Greece, where it was believed to be a native of the Hellespont, and throughout Italy, where it was supposed to have come originally from Spain. It is very probable that from the mackerel was obtained one of the varieties of garum, known by the name of garum sociorum. Further on, we intend to devote a special chapter to the subject of this celebrated condiment. Neither the size nor the weapons of mackerel make them formidable, they have however a violent appetite and on account perhaps of the confidence they feel in the number of each shoal they are bold and voracious frequently attack fishes larger and stronger than themselves and even dart with blind audacity upon the fishermen who bathe where they happen to be thus pontopidan relates that a sailor bathing in the port of carcool in norway missing one of his companions saw him a few minutes afterwards dead the body mangled and covered with a multitude of mackerel tearing his remains to pieces dr cloquet haddock 
The haddock, like the sturgeon, was surrounded with the ridiculous honours of almost divine pomp. It was served interwoven with garlands, and trumpeteers accompanied the slaves who, with uncovered heads and foreheads crowned with flowers, brought the guests this dish, the merit of which was perhaps exaggerated by capricious fancies. Tench Ausinius, who lived in the fourth century of the Christian era, is the first who has spoken of the tench, in his poem of the Mostella. It was abandoned to the common people, who alone feasted on it. This fish, long the victim of an unjust disdain, ultimately conquered from the great esteem which they at first refused to it. Dragon Weaver The Dragon Weaver traversed unseen the long and brilliant gastronomic period of the Romans. Greece rendered it more justice, but its two modest qualities were not able to preserve it from forgetfulness and indifference. Loligo at rome the loligo a species of cuttlefish was sometimes served with pepper and rue mixed with garum honey sweet wine boiled and a few drops of oil sole this fish which the greeks caught on the coast was much sought after on account of the delicacy of its nourishing and light flesh the flounder the brill the diamond and the dutch place which together with the sole were known under the general name of passers enjoyed an equal esteem and had attributed to them the same qualities angelfish in holland there are angelfish of enormous size and aldro van Deus relates that some have been seen which weighed as much as one hundred and sixty pounds in the time of this naturalist the common people did not eat them very willingly filefish the flesh of this species of the bolistas is only good when fried, according to Margrave. Columella thinks as much of it, and Pliny ranks it among the saxatils, the most esteemed by connoisseurs. Pilchard Among the Greeks, this fish was considered only as fit for the people. Those from the environs of the phaleres were much esteemed, when left only an instant in boiling oil. The Romans, who gave them the first rank among the salt fish, stuffed them in order to render them better in the following manner. They bruised the pennyroyal, cumin, pepper, mint, and pine nuts. These they mixed with honey, and with this paste they filled the anchovy after having carefully boned them. They then wrapped them in paper and cooked them in bain-marie, or saucepan, immersed in boiling water. They were served with oil, dregs of fish brine, and cooked wine. Loach The Greeks liked loaches, but many abstained from eating them, lest the Syrian goddess, the protectress of these fishes, should gnaw their legs, cover their bodies with ulcers, and devour their liver. The inhabitants of Italy, free from this singular superstition, cleaned the loaches, left them some time in oil, then placed them in a saucepan, with some more oil, garum, wine, and several bunches of rue and wild majorum. Then these bunches were thrown away, and the fish was sprinkled with pepper at the moment of serving. Gudgeon The gudgeon, thought excellent by every one, but which no one mentions, appeared with honour in the most magnificent repasts at Athens. At Rome it was served fried at the beginning of supper, and it disposed the guests to attack boldly the culinary corps de réserve, 
which took up the position as soon as the skirmish with the gudgeon was over. This fish is in abundance, principally in France and Germany. It is very good and easily digested. They are served either fried or stewed. When done as last mentioned, they must be drawn and wiped dry, put in a flat stew pan with butter, salt, pepper, good red wine, spring onions, mushrooms, shallots, thyme, bay leaves, and basil. These last plants chopped very fine, stew the whole a quarter of an hour, and serve. Bosk. Herring. Herrings were known in Greece and Rome. Bosk says it is a manna that nature doubtless reserves for the northern nations, which they, however, have only turned to account in modern times. The first herring fishery known in Europe was on the coast of Scotland, but that nation knew not how to profit by the treasure that the sea offered them. All the Scotch historians mention this fishery, the produce of which was bought by the Dutch. This transaction took place under the reign of King Alfred, about the year 836. After some time the Scotch quarrelled with the Dutch, who undertook the herring fishery themselves. As they caught a great many more than they could consume, they salted them and sold them in foreign countries. Such was the origin of that immense commerce, which had its rise, according to Aedas, about the year 1320, a short time after the Teutons had established themselves in the Baltic. It is said that we owe the art of salting and barreling herrings to a Dutch fisherman named William Buchels, who died in 1449. The Dutch nation raised a mausoleum to his memory, and it is asserted that Charles V, who visited it in 1536, ate a herring upon it to render homage to the author of a precious discovery. In the year 1610, Sir Walter Raleigh gave a statistical account of the commerce carried on by the Dutch in Russia, Germany, Flanders, and France, with the herrings caught on the coast of England, Scotland, and Ireland. The sale of this fish amounted in one year to the sum of £2,650,000. It has been erroneously thought that the herring was the Helec, or Alec, of the Romans, this name was given by them to a kind of brine. It was not the name of any particular fish. There are two prevalent methods of preserving herrings, and fishmongers sell them under the denominations of salted herrings and red herrings. The process employed for the first named is as follows. As soon as the herring is out of the sea, a sailor opens it, removes the gills and the entrails, washes the fish in salt water, and puts it into a brine thick enough for it to float. After fifteen or eighteen hours it is taken out of the brine and laid in a tub with a quantity of salt. It remains in this tub until the port is reached. There the herrings are placed in barrels, where they are artistically arranged one over another, with fresh salt between each layer. Care is always taken to employ fresh brine. Red herrings are prepared by leaving the fish at least twenty-four hours in the brine, and when they are taken out, little twigs are run through the gills, and then they are suspended in a kind of chimney, made on purpose, under which a small fire is made with wood, which produces a good deal of smoke. The herrings remain in this state until they are sufficiently dry, that is to say, about twenty-four hours. In Sweden and Norway they are somewhat differently prepared. The Icelanders and Greenlanders simply dry them in the air. Anchovy 
Sonini thinks that the garum was simply composed of anchovies cooked and crushed in their brine, to which was added a little vinegar and chopped or pounded parsley. The fishermen of the Mediterranean and the coasts of the ocean salt almost all the anchovies they take. They cut off their heads, which are thought to be bitter, take out the entrails, wash them in soft or salt water, and stratify them in barrels with salt. The fishermen of Provence think it is essential to the good preservation of anchovies that the salt be red, and, consequently, they colour it with ochreous earths. Moreover, these fishermen do not change the brine which is formed in the barrels. They simply fill them up when any is lost by evaporation or leakage. The fishermen of the north only use bay salt, and they change the brine three times, whence it results that their anchovies keep much longer. But the greater acridness of those which have remained in the same brine is esteemed a good quality by most consumers, and therefore they are much sought after. In seaports, anchovies are eaten either fried or roasted. Salted anchovies are to be preferred when they are new, firm, white outside, vermilion-colored inside, and free from all putrid smell. After having taken out the backbone and washed them well, cooks commonly make use of anchovies in salads and to flavor sauces made with butter, culis, etc. In this case, they are employed raw. They are not unfrequently fried, after having been deprived of the salt and surrounded with an appropriate paste. Some persons toast slices of bread, cover them with strips of anchovies, and serve them with a sauce composed of oil, vinegar, whole pepper, parsley, scallions, and eschalots, all in abundant quantities and chopped very small. Shellfish The Emperor Caligula had made immense preparations to invade Great Britain. He set off and when he arrived in the sight of that Albion he was going to attack, he commanded his troops to form in close array along the shore, the trumpets to sound the charge, and sat himself on the quarter-deck of his galley, from whence he might have directed the action. For a short time he contemplated his warlike cohorts, and having thus gratified his pride, he ordered his troops to pick up the shells which abounded on the strand and return to Rome, where he showed the spolia opima, the ocean had delivered up to him. Caligula expected to receive the honors of a triumph, but the Senate, having some sense of modesty left, would not award them, and the implacable Caesar, from that moment, swore the ruin of the senators. The inhabitants of Greece and those of Italy thought a great deal of shellfish, which was always served at the beginning of the repast, just as they came from the sea, Others cooked under the ashes or fried. In most cases, they were seasoned with cumin and pepper. The purveyors of fish in Rome gave the preference to those taken in the lake of Lucrinus. The Greeks esteemed those from the promontory of Polaria. The city of Baiae, in Campania, celebrated for its charming position and the unreserved lax manners of its inhabitants, was not less renowned for its culinary labors and the nicety which presided over their joyful banquets. Apicius has left us the recipe of a most exquisite stew, Amphractum, which the Epicureans of Rome often went to degust among their rivals, the Campanian gastronomists. Cut up oysters, mussels, and sea hedgehogs, let the pieces be rather small, put them in a stewpan, with pine almonds, fried and chopped, some parsley, rue, pepper, coriander, and cumin, add with proper care and discretion some cooked wine, garum, and oil. 
cover and boil the whole for a long time on a slow fire. We will point out the shellfish most in vogue in Italy, and for which the seasoning was generally composed of a mixture of pepper, parsley, dried mint, alisander, a great quantity of cumin, and a little of the decoction of spikenard. Oyster. The pontiffs of pagan Rome, men of exquisite delicacy and a matured taste, caused oysters to be served at every repast. This little piece of epicurism was very expensive, and it was necessary for these grave personages to carry the whole of the devotion which characterized them in their love of good cheer to the highest degree, to dare eat of a fish still uncommon a century before the Christian era. At this epoch a baroche, a sort of breakfast, of oysters was worth one hundred sesterces, or nine pounds. It is unnecessary to remark that the poor never tasted them. The Greeks and Romans, like ourselves, were remarkably fond of this delicious shellfish and eat them, French fashion, at the beginning of a banquet. For this reason, Athenian epicures called oysters the gastronomic prelude to the supper. They were often served raw, and were then dexterously opened by a slave on the table, in presence of the guests, whose experienced eyes greedily sought the light purple net which, according to them, surrounds the fattest and best. The inhabitants of Italy preferred large oysters, and exacted that this dainty manna of the sea should always be fresh and abundant at their feasts. This displayed wisdom on their part. This delightful fish excites the appetite and facilitates digestion. To add to its delicate flavor, the Roman Club of Epicureans, a useful association, which modern Europe envies antiquity, caused to be sent from Spain, at a vast expense, that precious garum, the recipe of which seems to have been lost, and the condiment itself forgotten by the whole of the peninsula. The magiric genius of Rome did not hesitate to demonstrate that oysters do not form an exception to the law of perfectibility which governs all beings, and that it is possible to render their flesh more succulent and delicate by transporting them from their damp cradle into reservoirs exposed to the mild influence of the sun. Sergius Arata, or perhaps Fulvius Herpinus, was the first who received this happy inspiration. He caused it to be constructed near Puzzol, a short time before the civil war of Pompeii, a fish-pond, where bestowed oysters which he fattened with paste and cooked wine worked into the consistence of honey, sapa et fer. This worthy Roman enriched himself by the sale of them, and bequeathed a name to posterity, a twofold happiness for the gastronomist Fulvius, whose good fortune the poet Homer did not partake. Apicius esteemed highly oysters from the lake of Lucrinus, from Berindes and Abidus, and studied deeply the succulent qualities of this shellfish. He knew how to preserve them fat, fresh, and alive during long and fatiguing journeys, and, thanks to a delicate attention on the part of this immortal bon vivant, the great Trojan was enabled to regale himself with oysters sent from Rome while carrying on a distant war against the Parthians. This present of the king of Epicureans to the master of the world was worthy of both the giver and the receiver, but it completed the ruin of the generous Apicius. The Roman ladies shared their husband's taste, and eagerly partook of oysters from the lake of Lucrinus, brought into fashion by Sergius Arata, 
and when their fatigued stomachs struggled painfully with gluttony, this delicacy soon obtained an easy triumph by disposing the appetite to fresh exertions. The means of defence, however, were not very formidable. Sometimes a little warm and limpid water, oftener a dazzling plume from the bird Juno, hastened the struggle and, without effort, decided the victory. This ingenious method was very much relished by polyphagists, and the emperor Vitellius particularly honoured it. Cape Polaris furnished the Greeks with highly prized oysters, which were eaten alone, fried, stewed, or nicely dressed with marshmallows, dock leaves, and with some kind of fish. The Romans at length became disgusted with those found on the coasts of Italy, or in the Dardanelles. An instinct of greediness caused them to prefer oysters from the Atlantic Ocean, and especially from the shores of Amorica, now called Brittany. Bordeaux supplied imperial tables, and this distinction is sufficient for its praise. It may not be useless to remark here that no sooner had Asinius praised this fish in his lines than it was forgotten, and did not reappear till the seventeenth century on the table of distinguished personages. May our descendants be more just than our forefathers. At Rome, oysters were served with a seasoning of pepper and alisander, mixed with the yolk of eggs, vinegar, garum, oil, wine, and a little honey. They were preserved in a vase smeared with pitch, washed with vinegar, and hermetically closed. Oysters of a fine quality are generally of easy digestion, but not very nourishing, particularly when eaten raw. They are sought for to open the appetite, which is the case owing to the nature of the water, agreeably salted, contained in them. Some mention is made of persons who can eat from fifteen to twenty dozen without being ill. It is not the same when cooked. Then they become hard, more tough, and consequently indigestible. They are also eaten pickled with vinegar and sweet herbs. In this state they are sent to countries distant from the sea, piled upon one another, without the shell, in small barrels. De Blainville Sea Hedgehog under this denomination were classed all animals more or less orbicular, whose envelope bristles with calcareous points, on which account they were compared to hedgehogs. The Greeks thought them delicious when caught at the full moon, and prepared with vinegar, sweet-cooked wine, parsley, and mint. Oxymel often replaced vinegar. The Romans also esteemed highly this dish, which was recommended to sluggish appetites under the auspices of the faculty and Apicius furnished the following recipe for the preparation of it. Procure a new saucepan, thus says the great master, place it in a little oil, garum, sweet wine, and pepper. When the mixture begins to boil, stuff the sea hedgehogs, then submit them to the action of a slow fire, add a large quantity of pepper, and serve. Muscle the two great nations of antiquity have granted uncommon praise to mussels, and partook of them at their most sumptuous feasts. At the wedding repast of the graceful Hebe, Jupiter wished the inhabitants of Olympus to exchange for this shellfish their celestial though monotonous ambrosia. Epicharmus, who records the fact, does not inform us with what the sauce the chef de cuisine of the gods dressed the flesh of those mussels. The reader must thus content himself with the seasoning invented by simple mortals, and which appeared good to them. It was composed of a suitable mixture of pepper, alisander, parsley, 
mint with a quantity of cumin seed a little honey vinegar and groom with this mixture they covered the boiled and widely opened mussels and the guests found it impossible to satiate themselves with this dish so much more digestible and nourishing than oysters scallop the effeminate inhabitants of tarentum the abode of luxury delighted in good living and boasted of possessing the finest scallops of campania and of the whole empire the infallible authority of this voluptuous city in the matters of taste gave a surprising vogue to this fish rome and all the population of italy believed it was forced to eat the scallops of tarentum prepared with oysters and at other times with mussels it now remains to be mentioned that some kinds of testacea appeared worthy of the reputation they acquired among the ancients tortoise the greeks and latins speak with admiration of the enormous size of certain tortoises in their time the whole species of which were comprised under the generic word testudo the indian sea produced some so large that the shell of one only amply served to roof a comfortable and elegant cottage the inhabitants of the shores of the red sea never troubled themselves with building sloops large shells of tortoises spared them the trouble by supplying them with charming little barks which lightly floated on the water and lastly in the ganges tortoise shells were found capable of containing no less than twenty amphorae or about five hundred and sixty pints the inhabitants of peloponnesus did the tortoise the signal honour of representing its image on their money the blood cured diseases of the eye and the flesh in great request was thought excellent eating it was cut into pieces of a middling size and placed in a saucepan with pepper rue and scallions crushed in the same mortar over this was poured honey garum raisin wine common wine and a small quantity of good oil at the moment of ebullition the whole was thickened with flour sometimes the tortoise was boiled and covered with a seasoning for which the following is the recipe mix pepper alisander parsley mint and wild marjoram with the yolks of eggs honey garum wine cooked wine and oil add mustard and vinegar sea crawfish apicius sought relief from his culinary studies at minturnus in campania where that great master regaled himself with delicious sea crawfish in order to keep up his gustatory powers genius reposes amidst studious leisure being told that africa produced some of these testicia of an immense size immediately the worthy roman tears himself away from the sweet solitude he had created he freights a vessel aeolus smiles on the undertaking neptune protects him and he arrives in the sight of the african shore scarcely was he disembarked when some fishermen brought him a few sea crawfish he examines rejects them and demands finer ones be brought he is informed that it will be impossible to procure any larger than those before him at this apicius smiles disdainfully and commanding the presence of his pilot orders him to steer back for italy decidedly magiric genius never revealed itself by a more sublime action however pliny somewhere mentions certain magnificent sea crawfish which he describes as being four cubits in length very large ones certainly roman tables often presented to the sight of guests boiled sea crawfish peppered and garnished with asparagus but they were generally covered with a gravy composed of honey vinegar wine garum oil and cooked wine to which were added scallions chopped small 
pepper, alisander, carrots, cumin, and dates. Mustard was then mixed with the whole. Lobster Antiquity rendered justice to the lobster, and the taste for it did not change, being founded on truly estimable and sterling qualities. It was opened lengthwise and filled with gravy, into the composition of which entered both pepper and coriander. It was then slowly cooked on the gridiron, and every now and then basted with the same kind of gravy, with which the flesh became impregnated. River Crayfish the greeks were remarkably fond of this fish especially when obtained from alexandria they were not less esteemed in rome where they eat them boiled with cumin and seasoned with pepper alisander parsley dried mint and a great quantity of cumin the whole carefully and well ground and mixed with honey vinegar and garum to which was sometimes added some liquid perfume Crayfishes can be preserved several days, not too warm, in baskets with some fresh grass, such as the nettle or in a bucket with three-eighths of an inch of water. If there were enough water in it to cover them, they would die in a few moments, because their great consumption of air does not allow them to live in water unless it is continually renewed. Bosk. Crab. Would you like to eat crab sausages? Boil some of these animals, reduce them to a pulp, Mix with this some spicanard, garum, pepper, and eggs. Give to this the ordinary shape of sausages. Place them on the stove or gridiron, and you will, by these means, obtain a delicate and tempting dish. Apicius assures us of the fact. Apicius was a connoisseur. A crab may also be served whole, boiled, and accompanied by a seasoning of pepper, cumin, and rue, which the cook skillfully mixes with garum, honey, oil, and vinegar is it preferred stuffed then fill it with a skilful mixture of cumin mint rue alisander pine nuts and pepper the whole long soaked in garum honey vinegar and wine frogs the ancients thought nothing of frogs which they left at liberty to propagate there was such a great number among the abderides that these good people gave up to them their native soil and left the place in search of another spot at the present day in some countries frogs are sought for as a most agreeable and wholesome food in other parts england in particular they are disdainfully shunned but in france there is a great consumption of them especially in the spring about a century since they were greatly in fashion at paris and it is stated that a countryman from the province of auvergne named simon made a considerable fortune by feeding and fattening them in one of the suburbs of that city which were sent to him from Auvergne. In Germany, the various parts of the frog are eaten, the skin and intestine excepted, but in France they are satisfied with the hind legs, which, by the size of their muscles, are themselves equivalent to all the rest. They are dressed with wine as fish, with white or brown sauce, fried or roasted, when tender and properly done. It is a most delicate dish. Bosque before the conclusion of this article we may as well mention the frightful dish which modern good taste has banished from our tables but which the ancients allowed to reappear at theirs it is the polypus highly esteemed in both greece and italy when caught at a certain period and its numerous immoderate legs stretched far over the edges of the dish prepared to receive it this monster was cut in pieces and eaten with a sauce composed of pepper garum and benzoin it will be easily understood that ancient nations must have early accustomed themselves to fishing the origin of which 
doubtless goes back to the first ages of civilization the holy writings often mention fishermen fishhooks and nets homer speaks of them and the poet hesiod who flourished thirty years before homer places on the shield of hercules an attentive fisherman ready to throw his net over some fish pursued by a dolphin the egyptians also practised this occupation of which the following anecdote is a proof antony being in egypt the beauteous cleopatra sought to amuse him by inventing for his entertainment each day new kinds of pleasure but the roman general seized with a violent love of fishing fled from the society of his numerous courtiers and alone on the borders of the sea or an isolated lake vainly waiting for the smallest gudgeon he forgot long hours of vain expectancy and useless patience the queen undertook his cure she commanded a diver to plunge into the water and there hook a fish to the line of antony he seeing it agitated joyfully withdrew it from the water and unhooked a salted sardine cleopatra then exclaimed leave to the egyptians the task of fishing romans should take only kings cities and emperors the inhabitants of italy fished exactly in the same manner as we do this day but roman luxury always greedy of extravagant profusion invented those celebrated fish-ponds which cost immense sums both to build and maintain and to which lucilius hortensius and philippus whom cicero surnamed the tritons of fish-pools consecrated almost entirely their anxiety and fortunes this folly was carried to such a height that fish-ponds were constructed on the roofs of houses more reasonable persons contented themselves with bringing river-water into their dining-rooms the fish swam under the table and it was only necessary to stoop and pick them out the instant before eating them these expensive habits could only suit the most opulent and the least numerous class of romans the honest citizen modestly provided himself at the fish-market and the part not eaten by him the first day was submitted to a very simple process which assured its preservation for this it was only necessary to cover it with boiling vinegar as soon as it had been fried fish was also well preserved by surrounding it with snow and placing it at the bottom of an ice-house end of section twenty three recording by corinne lepage